0: Prime members, you can listen to Cult Leader early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it, too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores, like Urban Outfitters, Sephora, and Nike. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. Hello and welcome back to Cult Leader. I'm your cult leader, Spencer Henry, and I'm back to talk to you about something awful. Before we do, how you doing? We had a random surge in listeners lately, so hi, welcome to our cult. Please make yourself at home. I know this partially because of data and partially because I keep getting emails about how to pronounce Marine Corps. Listen, I know I called it Marine Corps in one of the first episodes, but it's been 84 years. I I know, okay, I know. What did we talk about last week? Oh, Palm Springs, Cliff Lambert, that story of like the sugar daddy gone wrong. On obituary, we talked about funeral clowns, which was the highlight of my week. And on the Little Leader that I put out on Friday, I read some of your guys's MLM stories, which, by the way, please keep sending those. I'm already working on the next Little Leader, so if you have a story, whether it's catfishing, a spooky encounter, or you joined a pyramid scheme, send it on over to spencer at cultleader.com and put Little Leader in the title. So this past year, right? That's my segue. This is We're moving on. Really something, our first pandemic together. I was wondering this morning what we were talking about last year because this week a year ago is when we first started kind of going into everything and a year ago i covered the story of that doctor in the 90s it was episode 60 it's called the doctor will see you now and that's actually one of my favorite episodes because of the twist or just really surprising ending i won't give anything away in case you haven't listened yet but on the caption for that post i was like this week is ominous because we just entered quarantine for what we all thought i think was going to be like two weeks which <laughs> jokes on us it was also when shit started popping off with Lori Vallow and Chad though. and remember I like wouldn't talk about anything else I did like five episodes on them what a time ty- I can't believe it's been a year since all that really started surfacing but regardless we've got another bad couple in today's episode but before we get to them let me do my thing follow along online at cult leader podcast subscribe to our patreon patreon.com slash cult leader and if you could be so kind leave a review on itunes or wherever you're listening hey Thank you. What we have in front of us today is a story about two people who really kind of went through their downfall together. It's Memo- I want music Hold on Play- cue the music. It's Memorial Day weekend 2002. Couple Josh and Jeannie had rented a condo together in Ocean City, Maryland, a resort town along the Atlantic shore. When they didn't show up for work that next week, co-workers on both parties were perplexed. This wasn't like them. Police were notified of the missing couple and decided to check out the condo they'd rented for the weekend. Jeannie's car sat outside, covered in sand in a way that made it clear had been sitting idle for a few days. They explore the condo, but don't find anything particularly strange, though their belongings remained inside. It was as if they'd gone out that evening, maybe to get a drink, perhaps some food, and then, well, vanished. Authorities were able to piece together a bit of a timeline thanks to some receipts they found left behind. They'd gone to a bar called the Green Turtle on Saturday night, but bartenders assured officers that the couple was alone. From there, they'd hopped on a shuttle to go to a nearby club, Secrets. The shuttle driver was able to recognize Josh and Jeannie from a photograph shown to him. Oh yeah, they were chatting it up with this other couple. After interviewing employees at Secrets Nightclub, they learned that they spent the night throwing back drinks with this mystery couple. After this night out on the town, Jeannie and Josh were never heard from again. No charges to their credit cards, no checkout, they just plain disappeared. About a week later, police were called to a local Hooters restaurant in Ocean City, where a silent alarm had been tripped. When they arrived, they found a couple walking out with mounds of stolen merchandise. Little did they know they were now face to face with the mystery couple whom Josh and Jeannie had spent their last known night with. So we're going to meet the couple. We'll start with Erica. Erica Elaine Grace was born on February 3rd, 1978 in Roaring Spring, Pennsylvania to Charlotte Gale, her mom, who they called Cookie, and her dad, Gerald Mitchell Grace, who they called Mitch. And they were just ecstatic at the birth of their baby girl, and she was really the apple of their eye her whole childhood. Mitch ran a successful contractor business, and Cookie stayed at home with Erica. Erica was their only child and was said to have just been an ideal student because her family was this upper middle class family. They had money. They didn't want to raise her like a spoiled brat like some of the other kids that they knew. Instead, they wanted her to be a hard worker. She had a seemingly normal childhood, playing basketball, working hard in school to get great grades and be on the honor roll. Her school basketball coach was quoted as saying, She was really kind of an ideal kid, really intelligent, extremely likable, outgoing. Her father was very invested in her basketball career from a young age all the way through her teen years. It's been said that he wouldn't let her in the house for dinner until she made 10 free throw shots. Not me. Couldn't be me. My parents put me on basketball team for like one year, one time, and the only VHS footage that we have of it, I'm shooting a basketball into the wrong basket for the other team, so... That's my basketball story. Back to Erica. Good kid. Good student. Had lots of friends in school. Was really close with her parents. Was outgoing. Very much a yes person. And she was like a local basketball celebrity around town. Like everyone knew her from that high school. She was the kid, if your parents brought you to Whole Foods, she'd be high-fiving the other kids' dads. Just a good kid. A lot of very wholesome activities outside of school. Definitely was not partying or anything. She was super into scrapbooking and just collecting, which will be very prominent later on, obviously from the title. After graduating from high school, Erica went on to attend Mary Washington College, now University of Mary Washington. Washington in Fredericksburg on a partial basketball scholarship. She kept up her academics and graduated cum laude with a degree in history. She had hopes of maybe going to law school eventually and even had an internship lined up at a district attorney's office. During her college years, she started developing some emotional and mental health issues, which I think is pretty common around that age. I'd assume that she just felt this immense amount of pressure to be an overachiever, maintain a place at the top of her class, be this star athlete. She ended up developing pretty severe OCD and suffered from compulsions as well. During her junior year, she gave up basketball because she wanted to maintain her good grades and she knew that she could no longer simultaneously do both. Her parents were super disappointed, especially her dad, with this decision. But they haven't seen nothing yet because Erica said, I'll show you disappointment, just hold my basketball. We're going to talk in a minute about how she met BJ and all of that. But first, we're just going to take a quick break and hear from one of our sponsors. Cult Leader is sponsored by BetterHelp. Cult babes, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Are you hitting the gym? Hitting the sheets for a little nap? Looking at your neighbor's house on Zillow? Really though, if time was unlimited, how would you use it? How would you decide what's important enough to make time for? Unfortunately, time is not unlimited. But fortunately, therapy can help you figure out what matters to you so you can do more of it. That's one of my biggest takeaways from therapy. Figuring out where to devote time to make the rest of my life easier. I could go on forever about how much less stressful life is once I learned to prioritize my time, but why don't you see for yourself? Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash cultleader. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash wonderypod or text WONDERYPOD to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WONDERYPOD or text pod to 500-500. Now we're getting somewhere. In Erica's senior year of college, she meets Benjamin Seifert, nicknamed BJ, and we're only going to refer to him as BJ now, she was at a local college bar with friends where a friend of a friend introduced the two, and it was love at first sight. BJ was born on October 21st of 1977 in Esterville, Iowa, to his mom, Elizabeth, and his father, Craig. He had a very similar upbringing to Erica. He was a gifted swimmer, so he was like athletic as well, but he stopped in high school because he felt that he wasn't good enough. I'll never be good enough. After high school, he joined the Navy SEALs and went off to California for training. He was number one in his class, being the youngest SEAL in his class to graduate. He was a stellar athlete, soldier, also seems like a pretty good kid. Uh, However, he was quite the party animal. One of his classmates said that he could drink all night, stay up all night partying, like party hard, and then wake up and run a 20 mile marathon with the Navy SEALs and finish first. Talk about adrenaline or like superpowers. Like how the hell are you not dehydrated and depleted of all energy? Well, I guess you're like 20. So it's also what we call a functioning alcoholic. Back to meeting Erica. They date pretty much from the night they met until three weeks later. He gets down on one knee and proposes and Erica says, Y-E-S, yes. She's like, I'm lining. My scrapbook is not fucking ready for this. I'm going to have to go to Michael's. I'm going to have to get miniature fucking bride and groom stickers, like... Alas, they didn't even end up having a wedding, which is surprising to me, considering she's a scrapbooker. Instead, they opted to quickly get on a plane to Vegas and eloped there at Silver Bell's wedding chapel. They were both 20 at the time. Again, her parents, not thrilled with her decision-making. They did not approve of this whirlwind romance, but eventually they come around. And they're just kind of chalking up to like, well, crazy kids, could be worse... Soon after, BJ ended up being deployed to cold weather training at a Navy base in Alaska. This is the first time we kind of see Erica's slippage. She starts getting really jealous, like really, really jealous. She hated that he was gone, and she would just sit at home and talk herself into these crazy scenarios of like, he's having an affair. He's going to leave me when he's out there, which, you know, really we we've, we've all been there. She pulls a full-on 90-Day Fiancé Danielle. If you haven't watched 90-Day Fiancé, I'm not even a 90-Day Fiancé fan, but the season with Danielle and Mohammed is just a story for the fucking ages. But she actually fucking flies all the way to Alaska So BJ just comes home from training one day and she's sitting in his dorm, which was heavily against the rules. And she's like, hi, I'm I'm here. And BJ ended up being put on probation as a result of this situation. He also had a bunch of other shit going on and he ended up having a bad conduct discharge because he had a failure to appear for duty. Uh, He was caught multiple occasions cussing at his higher ups and reckless driving As well as uh, there was like a false insignia, like wearing medals that he wasn't awarded. So his time with them was done. And it honestly is kind of the beginning of the spiral for the couple. At first, it doesn't seem that bad. They end up moving uh, back to Altoona, where Erica's parents lived. And her parents completely hooked them up with an apartment because BJ was unemployed. So they give them this apartment that's above a garage where Erica's dad kept a lot of work supplies. And they helped the young couple open up a scrapbooking store called Memory Lane, which was just like a fucking dream to Erica who loved scrapbooking. In order to make things meet, they also sold things on eBay and made a pretty good profit from that too. I know the story sounds kind of like normal and sweet so far, but it's, it's not going to be. Of the things that they sold the most it was Hooters merchandise. Like Erica's favorite restaurant was Hooters. She fucking loved it. She collected a lot of the branded merchandise herself from there. And that's mostly what the couple sold on eBay, which we love it. A, a scrapbooking girl who also happens to be a Hooters fanatic. Why not? I've actually, I don't think I've ever been to a Hooters. I've known girls who worked at Hooters, but I've never been there. Here's what I've heard. They've got boobs. They've got shirts with owls on them. They've got fried pickles that will knock your socks off. I'm going to try it one day. Catch catch me at Hooters once quarantine ends. Okay, so like I said, they they were still kind of, even though things on the outside looked fine, like Erica's parents were able to get them, Uh, BJ took a real deep dive after getting kicked out of the Navy. He started developing a love for the Aryan nation. He got a big fat swastika tattoo on his left bicep. Just total scum. Disgusting. The worst. His racism is very prevalent in even the naming of their pets. They had these snakes and they named one of them Hitler, one of them HIV, two fucking awful things that have killed a lot of innocent people like and then they had two named Bonnie and Clyde just all things that are very real uh it's like the old adage you never know what goes on behind closed doors like you would think this sweet young scrapbooking couple who owns the town scrapbooking store would be these Hallmark movie kind quirky thoughtful maybe even a little boring nope those scrapbookers are racist hateful uh they're starting to get into drugs at this point so he had been partying a lot during his time in the navy and then he brought that home with him and they started doing a lot of coke they, so they're getting super into drugs also giving really strange gifts bj gave erica a 357 smith and wesson revolver for her birthday and erica goes down this like lifetime movie spiral from being this star athlete good girl college graduate to getting tattoos, which there's nothing wrong with, uh, but just very rapid changes, losing a lot of weight on her already tiny frame, and she starts taking prescription pills like Paxil and Xanax in order to quote unquote calm down. Hey, Erica, I'm gonna tell you, <laughs> I'm gonna tell you why you're not why you're not calm. It's because. You're spinning guns around your finger while doing lines of blow. The two of them just continue to be a bad thing for one another and things are changing for the worse. We'll talk more after this quick break. This is a a final break. One more break and then we'll be right back. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all. Not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N O O M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Okay, so it's Memorial Day weekend in 2002 and these party animals decide that they're going to go party in Ocean City where they were renting a top floor condo in a building called The Rainbow. They go to a local bar that night, have some drinks. I feel like this is a place with a lot of themed drinks. I know some of you guys are going to be like, oh, I've been there, I've been there. Please let me know. I'm picturing they're drinking some Maui Wowie margaritas afterwards they get tired of being at this place they take a shuttle to another bar nightclub place called secrets and secrets was like the play it was hopping she is just fucking okay wait until you guys see pictures i don't know if you're going to expect this or not <laughs> i'm just gonna i can't even describe it. okay I'll, I'll show you don't worry uh but anyway so they Take the shuttle to go to this secrets place. Uh, Very bad early 2000s fashion going on here. On the shuttle, they meet this other couple who were visiting from Virginia. Hello, Jeannie Crotchley and Josh Ford. We met them at the beginning, right? They had an organic meeting. Erica and BJ didn't have the correct change for the shuttle. So Josh offered to pay for their ride. And in exchange, BJ and Erica were like, Oh, well, when we get to Secrets, we'll buy you guys a drink to to even everything out. And then the rest is history. When the bar closes, they close out their tabs. BJ and Erica are like, you know what? Why don't you guys come back to our condo? We have this really fun penthouse condo. And Josh and Jeannie are like happy to be getting out of their daily norm. They're like, yeah, let's do it. Josh was a successful mortgage broker. Jeannie, an accountant for an insurance company. They'd met at an office party, and though there was a bit of an age gap, Josh was 32, Jeannie was 51, they had a lot in common, both divorcees. The pictures of them as a couple are actually super cute. Two years later, they moved into a home together in Fairfax, Virginia. And work kept the couple pretty busy. So a night out on the town, just what they needed. Everyone's having an amazing time partying. And then all of a sudden, there's this weird shift and things get weird. Erica's frantically looking for her purse. It's just the four of them in this condo. Uh, She can't find her purse anywhere. And she is like freaking out, Weird, freaking out. Like, where could it be? She asked Jeannie. She's like, "Did you take my purse?" And Jeannie's like, "What? Like, no. <laughs> like, we've been here the whole time." She is so sure that Jeannie stole her purse that she proceeds to make a nine one one call. And I'm I'm gonna play that now. What's your nine one one? Is it an emergency? Yes, I have an emergency at my apartment. Um, there are people in my house who I don't know, and. My purse is suddenly missing, and I'm afraid I'm going to have a robbery here. Okay, people in your apartment at this time? Yes. I'll connect you to the police. Stay on the line. Hey. What? I'm I'm upstairs in a bedroom where they don't know where I am. Okay, I'll connect you to the police. You can tell them, okay? Okay. Huh? Ocean City Police. Hello. There are people in... But then the call cuts out. She literally said, I don't know these people. They're just they're just in my house and they stole my purse. Like like your ass didn't invite them over to party. Okay, Erica. Also, if you noticed, Erica cut off the call and did not give an address. So the police never ended up coming to check on anything. So Erica goes back, she's confronting the couple, and then before they know it, BJ runs out and she's like they stole my purse. They they stole my grandma's $10,000 ring that was in there. It's missing. At this point, BJ has that Smith & Wesson birthday gift pointed directly at Jeannie and Josh. He tells them, take off all your clothes. Uh, just he wanted to prove, I guess, that they didn't have her purse hidden somewhere. I mean, it is the early 2000s. Little purses were in. Jeannie and Josh end up getting away. They run. They lock themselves in the bathroom because they're just like, what the fuck, you know, this poor couple. Everything I have heard and read a lot about this particular moment, everyone has said that it was like a game to Erica and BJ. They were getting a thrill out of it. So what happens next is Josh and Jeannie are in the bathroom, right? They've locked themselves in there. BJ's standing outside of the bathroom door with a gun. Meanwhile, Erica runs outside onto the balcony because there's a window to the bathroom there. And she sees the couple hiding in the bathroom just in a total panic. And she tells BJ when to fire the gun. He fires when he's directed to. The bullet goes through the door, straight through Josh's head, and he drops dead immediately. BJ then kicks in the bathroom door and now Jeannie's hiding under the vanity. Just like, fuck, it makes me so bad. It's, ah, it's just hard. This p- poor woman. He shoots and kills her under the vanity. There's a lot of different stories that end up coming out of this, different recollections, both on BJ's behalf, on Erica's behalf. uh, And we'll get to all of that. But either way, it's just the general consensus is that after BJ had kicked down the door, he was like, see you later, motherfucker, and then shot Josh. Uh, So maybe he didn't shoot through the door. Maybe he shot after he kicked through the door. Either way, awful. Erica also said that she remembers hearing Jeannie hiding crying and quote-unquote whimpering like a baby until she hears two shots fired and then silence. Now, later on, Erica admitted that she ran in and stabbed Jeannie after he shot her. Uh, I have a whole story on that in a little bit. One more thing. Erica has since said that that day, BJ asked her to cook and eat one of the victim's legs, but she refused. She said, if it's not Hooters wings, she doesn't want it. In all seriousness, when I was watching a Forensic Files episode on this, uh, which I'll tell you what I watched at the end of the episode, they recounted it and said that Josh was in the the bathtub in the bathroom holding up two severed heads, and Erica walked in, and he was like, take a picture, but I don't know. Just fucking This couple is just fucked. A lot of people compare them to... Uh, natural, born killers. Like, they just want to be this thrill-kill couple. BJ and Erica now have these two dead bodies lying in their bathroom. They proceeded to dismember the couple. They decapitated them, cut off their arms and legs, and put the different body parts into trash bags. They then carried the trash bags, I don't know how many... Uh, I'd assume a few, off to their Jeep, and they drove to Rehoboth Beach uh, in Delaware where they disposed of these bags in different dumpsters. How do you say that? Rehoboth? It's R-E-H-O-B-O-T-H. Someone, tell me. Okay, so they've disposed of the body now, and, you know, what do you do? You've committed a heinous crime? Well, you go mini-golfing, of course, and you smile and take pictures, all of which they did. You gotta get it for the scrapbook. I'll insert their mini-golf photo... Uh, on the the episode posting today. Also, the knife that she used to dismember and dispose of the victim, she kept safe in her pocket, not even cleaning it. Fucking disgusting. It's also worth it to note that she, of course, had started a scrapbook about this and referred to her and BJ as the modern Bonnie and Clyde, which we'll get to that when we talk about the investigation. So after this mini-golf game, which sounds insane... They went off to Home Depot and there is actually a picture of BJ in front of Home Depot smiling. They bought a new bathroom door while they were there to replace the one BJ shot through or kicked down. They also grabbed a ton of cleaning supplies and I believe they also repainted and tried to do a little remodeling as well, but they didn't replace the door just yet. Killing Josh and Jeannie was just like a thrill for them. It was it was the craziest thing they'd ever done, and it was such a turn on for the couple. They were ready to commit another crime just like this again. Enter Melissa Selling, who had been invited out for a night in Ocean City with her friend Justin Wright. Justin had just met BJ and Erica and was partying with them around town. Melissa said that he invites her over to their condo at the Rainbow Building and said that she got bad vibes immediately and went against her better judgment. She said that Erica threw her arms around her like they'd been best buds forever and showed her their pet snakes, which, yeah, I'm sure... The second the snakes come out and you're like, they're like, oh, this is HIV and Hitler and like, ah, I probably should go. She also said that BJ had a super bloodied up mouth. But BJ said it was because he had driven over a curb and split his lip on the steering wheel. When in reality, he probably injured it during the night of the attack a few nights before. Justin was pretty drunk at this point. Uh, According to an article from the Washington Post, the night started to mimic the night of the killings. Erica claimed that her purse was missing and that Melissa must have stolen it. BJ pulled out his gun and showed Melissa the door with the bullet hole through it. And he became very, very angry, Melissa later testified. He said... If we ripped him off like the other people who were here, he would do the same thing to us that he did to them, referring to the bullet hole through the door. She, by the grace of God, was able to get out of there with no injuries. But the weird part to me is that she didn't ever, there was no follow up after that. She didn't call the police. She didn't make a report. Nothing. Actually, you know what? I'll say this. I've been robbed at gunpoint before and I didn't call the police Because these people had my personal information and I was like, I don't want to fucking set it off. So I get it. When you're in those moments, it sounds like... Well, yeah, just call the police. But then you're like, sometimes that can make things worse. I don't know. All right. So let's do a quick recap here. We have one murder down, another one that was probably going to go down, but luckily got derailed for whatever reason. Now, remember their eBay store where they told you they sold all that Hooter merchandise? Well, a lot of it was stolen. They would break into local Hooters restaurants and steal a lot of merchandise to sell And it's honestly kind of what led them down this path of becoming cold-blooded killers. Word is that BJ could not get it up unless he had a thrill of some sort. So they actually started out by robbing local businesses next to their scrapbook store. So the same week of the murders, they decided to hit up the Hooters in Ocean City. And they, I mean, at this point, think they're fucking invincible, right? They're just like, we're Bonnie and Clyde. But they didn't know that they had tripped the Hooters' silent alarm. Soon police showed up arrested them that takes us kind of back to the beginning and i'll have the pictures of them arrested sitting on the curb outside of hooters Uh, When arrested, Erica had a panic attack and told the officers she needs her Xanax that's in her purse. And at this point, they have they don't know they're connected to anything one way or the other. They're just like, okay, clearly these people were robbing a Hooters. Well, the officers like, all right, I'll get you your Xanax. And as he's handing her her purse, he pauses to search it first. Inside, they find five rounds of used ammunition and two Virginia driver's licenses that happen to belong to Jeannie and Josh, also found in their Jeep. Gloves, masks, zip tie handcuffs, and thousands of dollars of Hooters memorabilia. They found the knife that she kept on her pocket that still had dried blood and hair on it, as well as a rainbow parking pass hung on their rearview mirror which showed where their condo was. The police at this point are like, oh shit, this is all connected. They're thinking like maybe Erica and BJ kidnapped Jeannie and Josh. Maybe there's a chance they're alive somewhere. As BJ and Erica are being hauled off to jail, investigators are making their way to see if Erica and BJ are indeed staying at the rainbow. And when they get to the condo, the front desk grants them access to their condo. And inside they find a lot of shit. They find a key for the condo where Jeannie and Josh had been staying. They found photos of all four of them hanging out together, including one that shows Josh wearing a ring that he always wore. And then the next photo is taken two days after the couple went missing, that shows Erica wearing the ring on a chain around her neck as if it's some fucking trophy, you guys. It's like, that's where your fucking, you know, your scrapbooking is gonna get you in trouble. CSI comes in for forensic testing and they note that the bathroom looks like it had been remodeled. The forensic team takes apart the bathroom, finds bullet fragments not only with Josh's blood on them, but also remnants of drywall. They find a partial palm print, uh, a lot of different DNA. Probably the worst of all is they pulled up the stopper to the sink and found clumps of hair as well as chunks of flesh. I want to talk about the days in between the murder and this Hooters break-in because it was it was about a week in between. friends in love. Ones of Jeannie and Josh had obviously become increasingly concerned about them on May 29th of 2002. They're the ones who tipped off the Fairfax, Virginia police about these missing persons. Josh and Jeannie had rented this Oceanside condo for the holiday weekend. People knew that. And then on the Tuesday after Memorial Day, when Jeannie didn't show up at work, which was unlike her, she had a day full of meetings. Everyone was on alert. Same thing kind of with Josh, and eventually. The police learned the couple was missing, and at first they went down kind of the normal routine, not thinking it would just be this random killing. They were like, oh, maybe Jeannie's ex-husband had something to do with it, but he had an alibi. Then they were like, well, maybe Josh, the younger boyfriend, was trying to scam Jeannie for her money, but eventually they rule all of that out. Thank God BJ and Erica got caught robbing that Hooters. Otherwise, who fucking knows? When they arrive at the police station, they detectives immediately start questioning them. They tell them, like, listen, here's the evidence we have. And over the next couple of days, they get the DNA results back and everything. And they provide Erica all this evidence. And they're like, look, we know you did this. Erica ends up striking a deal when she's presented with the evidence that she'll show them where the bodies are. And she'll also testify against BJ in exchange for a reduced charge. She told investigators they dismembered the bodies, put them in a dumpster in Delaware, the next state over, which is about 10 miles away. Uh, they find the body parts just where she said they would be. And just when it seems like it's kind of like case solved, Erica comes to them with more Initially, she had denied taking part in the murders, but when it came time for the polygraph test during the pre-interview for the polygraph, she admitted to stabbing Jeannie and that afterwards she went and got a snake tattoo on her side where she stabbed her as a forever reminder. Like, what is going on? What happened to our basketball star? So obviously after she admits her this part in it, the deal is off the table. And as the trial approached, they began to turn on each other more and more. When BJ and Erica go to trial, BJ's defense team completely blames everything on Erica. He says that he wasn't even at the apartment. He was out in the car sleeping and that she was the mastermind. She carried everything out. She shot the couple. She dismembered everything. Uh, And this defense ended up working in his favor. Because the bullets came from Erica's gun, the jury found BJ not guilty of murdering Josh And he was acquitted of all charges on that behalf. He was only charged with the second degree murder of Jeannie. BJ was 25 at the time and was sentenced to 38 years in prison for second degree murder. And then two months later, Erica was taken to trial, who definitely had way more going against her. She had a whole fucking scrapbook going against her. She, after all, was found with everything in her purse and just all of the evidence leading up to it said that BJ was abusive and that she had to do everything he told her to. Oh, and remember Melissa? She testified against them telling the court about her weird night with them that I recapped earlier. So it was all clear. It was very premeditated and the self-defense was not applicable. Erica was convicted on first-degree murder for Josh and second-degree murder for Jeannie. And she was sentenced to a life in prison plus 20 years. Uh, More recently, in 2010, BJ filed for divorce And he will be eligible for parole in 2021, the year we're in, while Erica will be eligible for parole in 2024. She tried to file an appeal in 2014, but was denied. Okay, wait. Wait until you guys see the pictures for today's episode. I'm, like, beyond thrilled. Cannot wait. Oh, some of my favorite comments on... Pictures, like, under episodes of them. Um, One is, she looks like a little dude with an 80s perm. No wonder she's mad. Someone else said, if they're the all-American couple, America is extremely ugly. And then my personal favorite, the wife looks like Corey (laughs) from Boy (laughs) Meets. from boy meets world so first of all you need to watch the forensic files i found it for free online just google it it's forensic files season 13 episode 47 it's called dirty little secret what do i gotta say about this one i'm gonna say this i'm gonna say sometimes couples are too inviting when you're another couple and i'm just gonna say this usually they want they want one of two things they're either swinging or they're shooting So if someone doesn't have their shuttle fare, you know, tell them they got to figure it out. See you on Friday with another little leader. That's the couple that killed Marilyn Torres, disgust eating victim. There's an article, life interrupted from the Baltimore Sun. Episode of That's Why We Drink called unidentified naked object. Uh, and then of course Wikipedia, Murderpedia articles. Hey Prime members, you can listen to Cold Leader early and ad free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen early and ad free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. The wait is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Ding! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Judy Justice, only on Freebie.